Good afternoon and good morning to all of you. I want to inform you, first of all, that we're not having a party out here. Uh, this is a church service, but over the phone we've been getting, uh, sounds like XELO. So if you're getting Spanish music in the background, uh, that's what it is. It's coming over the phone line somehow. But now then, since John signed off and the, I guess the lines may be muted, suddenly it's disappeared. So I guess we won't worry about that. Either that or you all got cut off and, and I'm just talking here to the ones in San Jose. I'm, there comes the music back. Uh, maybe the operator can help handle that. I don't know where it's coming from. Anyway, we began this series several months ago on how exclusive is the church, and we began with the definition of the 144,000, and they appear to be the entirety of the first resurrection. One reason I started into this is that this appears to severely limit the need for another large evangelistic effort between now and the tribulation. And that's have probably been called for God to sift through and round out the exact number of 144,000 first fruits for the first resurrection. In part two, we discussed other sheep, not of this fold, and showed that the Jews and physical Israel were the original fold. Christ took the power from them, gave it to the New Testament church, forming spiritual Israel or the Israel of God. Today, the church is the organism through which God works to build his coming government for the millennium and the great white throne judgment. I'm summarizing very briefly, but in part three, we saw the symbolism of Mother, Israel, Judah, Zion, Heavenly Jerusalem, Ephraim, the daughters of Zion, etc. It now be applied to the church in understanding the Bible as it relates to the church today. These terms apply first to the church and secondarily to physical Israel as she is punished and regathered in the millennium and great white throne judgment. Part four dealt with the ability to take the Old Testament prophecies and bring them forward to mean the church today, that the apostles understood this concept well enough that they could take bits and pieces from the prophecies, put them on the skeleton of the doctrines of the Bible, and apply them to the church in that day. So the same principle is true today. In other words, the church is exclusively the center of God's attention as the apple of his eye in preparing a bride for his son. Now, if only 144,000 are in the first resurrection and constitute the bride, we need to address Matthew 22. Here you have the parable of the wedding supper, and the question immediately comes up in the minds of some, then, if we have the bride there, who are the guests at the wedding? I've been promising to get to this for months, so here we go. We have tended to look at the first resurrection as only including the bride. I, I guess we have. I don't think there's been any official church doctrine over the years and worldwide about that, but it has sort of been the thought. Well, let's pick this up in Matthew 19, because there is a definite recurring theme in these parables right in this section of Matthew. I want to pick it up in verse 16 in Matthew 19, uh, not to spend much time on this particular instance, but here's where the young rich man came to Christ and said, how could he enter into the kingdom? And Christ told him, keep the commandments. And then he went on to say that a rich man would scarcely enter the kingdom. Have you ever tried to put a camel through the eye of a needle? 
That is the imagery that Christ used. If you've got a good mental uh, imagination, picture that. You know, start threading the camel's nose through the needle. See what it takes to get the whole camel through the eye of that needle. I can barely get a thread through it the way my eyes are getting. Let's let the camel. Now, his disciples had grown up listening to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, who had wealth as much of their focus. And the religious leaders focused on wealth. That's what these men had seen. So this immediately raised a question in their mind. How can anyone be saved? Or who then can be saved, is what they said. Christ answered, with men, this is impossible. With God, all is possible. And then down in verse 28, he shows that they, the apostles, would be ruling on twelve thrones with him, and that they are very key to them who can be saved because he was building the church on himself first, of course, Matthew 16, 18, and 19, and secondarily upon the apostles. So he said to them, you are the key in the New Testament church as to who can be saved. I'm not saying they are the overall key, lest anyone misunderstand. Christ obviously is the main key. But secondary to that in his purpose, the apostles were going to be working with the New Testament church. And he said, I will give the keys of the kingdom to you, to the New Testament ministry, not to the Jews anymore. You will be key to who can be saved. But what he's doing is explaining their part in the government and the kingdom and the order of the resurrections. Now, this is going to become very important as we go through here. Those who seem to be first would be last. Those who seem to be last would be first, is what Christ says in verse 30. He says this several times through this whole context. So the whole flow of these parables is to show physical Israel they have missed the boat, show the apostles that they are on the boat. On Matthew 20, we have the parable of the labors sent into the vineyard. And through the day, more and more and more were invited to go to work, be a part of the labor of that day. And this one is addressed to the disciples, not the Jews. He continues the same theme in here. Verse 8, uh, he called the laborers, verse 8, and gave them their hire, beginning from the last unto the first. So he started paying those who arrived last, First, are you beginning to understand 1 Corinthians 15, 23 applies here, that there's an order to the resurrections. And those who were part of physical Israel way back in the Old Testament coming forward are going to be the last ones who have opportunity of spiritual salvation. Those that died all those thousands of years back are going to come up in the second resurrection. So the first shall be last. And those who come up in the New Testament church, the end of the age, come to the opportunity for spiritual salvation first, even though they're last history. But this was, we probably understand that, but this was a new concept to these people. 
It was hard for them to grasp, and Christ went over it over and over again. But when they questioned, what's going on here? Well, those who had labored early, and that's what the Jews, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees were doing. They were questioning what Christ was trying to get across, that I'm going to take the power from you and give it to these other people. They didn't like that, so they complained here in verse 13. But Christ answered, Friend, I do you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a penny? They made a covenant back in the Old Testament with Moses. You agreed to it? Didn't do it. Take that, is, take that that yours is and go your way. I will give to this last, even as to you. So the opportunity for salvation is going to be there. But some are going to be paid ahead of time, and the rewards will be different. Now, in this, the reward obviously is eternal life or salvation, not reward. So there's a difference there. But he says, I can do what I will with my own, verse 15. And then he reiterated, verse 16, so the last shall be first, and the first last, for many shall be called, but few chosen. He puts these two recurring themes together here in one verse. So all Israel had opportunity to obey, but rejected Christ and the Old and New Testaments. A few chosen after them are chosen after them to be offered spiritual salvation before it will be offered to Israel later on. Now, Matthew 20, let's skip on up here to uh, verse, uh, Matthew 20, verse 20. Now, how did the disciples interpret this? They had seen the Pharisees, the Sadducees, various religious leaders in their day misuse, abuse, and lay heavy burdens on the people. And here Christ had told them in Matthew 16, 18, 19, he's beginning to get this concept across in the, to them that they were to be the leaders. Well, how did they interpret this? Well, immediately went to their mind, who gets to be in charge? Who will be the cheapest? Who will rule? That's the only rule they understood, was the rule with the thumb over someone. But Christ explained, that isn't the way it is to be, down in verse 25. You know the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, that they are, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you, whosoever will be great among you, let him be your servant, or your minister. Whoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. We have missed that a great deal in the greater church of God in the last, at least, certainly 12 years. Uh, even before that, there were wrongs that needed righted. Because we didn't understand, there is to be government, there is to be hierarchy, as we've seen many, many times. But it is to be administered in love and gentleness and kindness and patience the way Christ himself does. The point was not that they wouldn't be given rule, but how would they use it? Now let's go to verse 21, and, or chapter 21, and verse 23. When he was coming to the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. So he changes the audience here. He's not talking to the disciples, but he's talking in this particular one to the chief priests. And it is important in all these parables to understand who he addresses at the beginning of each one. Is it the disciples? He's giving information about themselves. Or is it the leaders of the Jews, the leaders of physical Israel? Because that helps you in discerning what he's talking about in each one of these. 
So this one is to the elders and the leaders again. And the point was, in this particular one, they question Christ's authority. And he tells them in verse 31 that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. And he told the story, I think this is the one where the two sons, one said, I will, Father, and didn't, and the other one said, I won't, and did. Well, physical Israel made a covenant with God and said, we will, and then didn't. But we have today what in the church? We have publicans and Pharisees. We have the weak and base of this world. That's who forms up the church. I haven't met any great, mighty, noble leaders in God's church. Maybe there's one or two here, I don't know. Noble people, of God is called, but uh, I don't see any crowns uh, in here. We're basically just the weak, the base, the average, the run-of-the-mill people of the earth. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. Let's go back, we're very familiar with that. Uh, sometimes when we get our opinions of, of how things ought to be, I think we forget it. And a lot of that has occurred in the church, so maybe we ought to go back and review it. Verse 27, verse 26 it starts, 1 Corinthians 1. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and the face of the world and things which are despised God has chosen, things which are not to bring to naught things that are. No flesh should glory in his presence, but of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made to us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So God is going to redeem the weak and the base. And here again the principle applies, taking those that you would think would be last and putting them first. Sometimes I deplore my lack of intelligence, my lack of ability, I feel incompetent, I feel like, why would God call me? I think we all probably have felt that way. But the answer is, going to use us to pick us up to his glory and show the world, look, I can raise up stones, I can raise up harlots and publicans. I have met more literal harlots in God's church, or former harlots, put it that way, than I have mighty, noble, and wise. We just aren't, for the most part, very bright. That's why our strength, our, our, we get our strength and our weakness. Because not having much, we go to God. Through His Spirit, we can do great things. Have and will. I mean, it's a great thing that you even came to repentance and began to change the way you thought. What an incredible miracle that is. We take it for granted, perhaps. But we've made some serious changes in our lives since we first began to understand the truth, haven't we? God has led us to this point. Well, let's go back to Matthew now. Uh, 21 and verse 33. another parable, and this one is tied in very closely with the wedding and the guests. In fact, they're almost inseparable and come together in the context. Here another parable, it was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about, digged a wine press in it, built a tower, and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. 
When the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And he took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. I think it's pretty clear here that uh, Christ sent his servants and didn't he say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that stone the prophets? Whenever God has sent his servants to help, warn, to encourage Israel, whether it be physical and now spiritual Israel, they have usually looked down upon them. In fact, in all ages they have. So, these people were not going to accept the leadership of the New Testament church. Remember here he's writing to the Pharisees, the leaders of physical Israel who have been in charge of the temple all these years. He says, I sent servants, and you killed them. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did to them likewise. Last of all, he sent to them his son, saying, surely they'll reverence my son. When the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. They caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. So they cast him out of Jerusalem, hung him on a stake outside the gates. And the Lord thereof, and this is a prophecy to these people who are about to do it. When the Lord thereof, therefore, of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these husbandmen? They say to him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard to other husbandmen. So they got the picture up to a point. He started telling this story, and obviously the conclusion would be he would get rid of them. But the light hadn't come on in their heads yet when they said that. The God was turning it over to other husbandmen, or Christ was at that point. He was saying, I'm going to give it to the church. I'm going to take it away from you. We'll say it here in another two verses. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, say I to you, you leaders of Israel, physical Israel, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. Or Galatians 16, or 6.16, spiritual Israel, the Israel of God. And he said it would grind them to powder. Verse 45, And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, the plural, these parables that he was speaking, suddenly the light came on. They perceived that he spoke of them. Oh! You mean you're taking it away from us. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. But when they realized what Christ was saying, I am taking rulership from you, they became very disturbed and were ready to kill him right then on the spot. Now, there's no break here. He goes right into another parable with them. Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables. So this parable is not written specifically to the church, although it certainly will apply, as we shall see, to the church, but it was spoken right to these rulers, still speaking to them. This is what he says. The kingdom of heaven is like to a certain king which made a marriage for his son. I think it's pretty obvious here that this would be speaking of the father. Uh, and the son, of course, is Jesus Christ. 
and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. So these people would have had opportunity to be part of God's kingdom, but they were his. He sent his servants the prophets. They warned them, they told them, they extolled to them that they ought to obey God, but they hadn't done it. So they wouldn't come. Physical Israel denied Christ. Christ finally had to reject them. Again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them what you're bidden. Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fatlings are killed. Now, other servants could be New Testament ministry, or, or prophets who were sent, first of all, and then later on it's going to be, as we'll see, I guess a little further down, I want to make that point, that uh, it's the New Testament ministry that he sends to them as well. So he threw other servants saying, Tell them what you're bidden. Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my ox and my families are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the marriage. But they made light of it, and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. Well, they had other things to do. They would not concentrate on the most important thing. What do we see in the world today? People going their own ways. Christ said it would be as in the days of Noah. People would be living their own lives, doing their own thing. And that began to happen even in the church, didn't it? And to lose our focus on where the church of God was headed. When it went into apostasy, we just went on about our lives. Some degree. We had other agendas, other things to do. Farmers, businessmen, concentrating on the physical. It warned that the rich have difficulty entering into the kingdom of God. Now the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. Let's go to Matthew 23. Tie it, tie it together with this. Matthew 23, verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that killed the prophets and stoned them which are sent to you, how often would I have gathered your children together, even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall not see me henceforth, till you shall say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. I am not going to offer you any relief any opportunity until you come to see where I am working. And Christ continues that by telling his disciples that of that temple, not one stone would be left on top of another. That temple was torn down. Their house of governorship, their house of rule was destroyed just a few years later. Christ is getting a message across here in these parables to these people. Now, verse 7, When the king heard thereof, he was angry, and he sent forth his armies, and destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. There you go. Who is the rod of God's anger? The Assyrian. We read in all the different prophecies. And he sent the Babylonian... He sent people in to destroy Jerusalem as it then was. And when Christ died, the veil of the temple was rent in twain anyway, allowing access to the Holy of Holies, 
And therefore, anyone could get to God. They didn't need that Old Testament priesthood anymore. It just simply destroyed everything they had. So Christ burned up, raised the city of Jerusalem. Now, verse 8. Then says he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. So he started working with physical Israel first. He made them his people. He bid them to obey him, but they would not come. So what does he tell his new servants, different servants, to do? Verse 9. Go you therefore into the highways, and as many as you shall find, bid them to the marriage. Go out to the highways and byways. What scripture does that remind you of? Let's go to Matthew 28. Here is the commission to the New Testament church. Verse 19, speaking to his disciples, Go you therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them, or make disciples of, that is, go to the highways and byways, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age of the cosmos, of the world as we know it. So this is a commission given to the original apostles and carried through until the very end of the age. It is a commission to the New Testament church to go out to the various nations and make disciples. That is exactly what, he, what uh, Herbert Armstrong did. He didn't fulfill Matthew 24, 14, which is a passive command. It says, this gospel shall be preached to the world as a witness. Now, he thought that's what he was doing, but that's not what he did. He gave a fairly benign message most of the time that God intended to call people to the church to be worked with. And that is the commission. The two witnesses will do the preaching of Matthew 24, 14. Now let's go back to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. This is what he did. He told his servants, verse 8, to go out, bid them, bid others, as many as you shall find to the marriage. And that's what the message of the Worldwide Church of God did. It went out to all nations. It went all over the world. It did not get to every creation or every creature. It didn't get to every human being. It was not that type of world coverage, but it was a call that went out there that people began to respond to, and God called a certain amount that he might sift through them. So bid all those that you find to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good. Now that's interesting because if we have projected that this wedding feast is talking about Christ marrying his bride in the kingdom when Christ returns, then how do those bad get up there in the crowd? Because remember, when Christ returns, at the last trump, immediately, it says there in Matthew, or no, in 1 Corinthians 15, it says immediately they rise to meet him in the air. Now, how are you going to get bad and good folks up there? Because the bad aren't going to be able to get off the ground. They haven't been changed. How is he going to change the bad into spirit? He wouldn't do it. 
Obviously, we're talking about something else here. So, this is an invitation that is given by the ministry of the New Testament Church to both bad and good. Remember the wheat and the tares? They're all invited in. And Christ said, let the wheat and the tares grow together. Because if you, if you try to get all the tares out, you're going to destroy the wheat. So let them grow until this thing ripens, until the harvest is ready, and then you can easily see which has wheat on it and which is just a bare stalk. Pretty simple. The wedding was furnished with guests. See here in my notes, I got away from them if there's something else I wanted to put in here. It probably changes in verse 8 from the Old Testament prophets to the New Testament ministry because those are the servants that he began to be used here. And that's what this whole context is about, is turning it over to the New Testament apostles, not to the Old Testament prophets anymore. So a change shows a change in who is invited and probably in who does the inviting. Now, verse 10 says, whoever responds. So it's like a calling or an evangelistic effort. And that's what we've just described as happening in the New Testament church. So, we should be beginning to see now that the setting here is not at the wedding supper once Christ returns and the first fruits are resurrected. There is no judgment at Christ's return for the first fruits. I hope we have that in mind by now. What does it say in 1 Peter 4.17? Judgment is now on the house of Israel, spiritual Israel, the church. You and I will not face judgment if we rise from the earth when Christ returns at the seventh trump. Our judgment will have already been finished. The judgment will have been that we qualify. We will be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Now, if you're standing there hoping, and everybody flips up into the air, and you're still standing there, then you know what your judgment is. You're not going to the wedding supper. If you're still anchored to the ground, and those who are going to the wedding supper are rising in the air. We have our judgment now. Once we rise in the air, our sins are going to be removed as far as the east is from the west, and they will never be mentioned to us again. There are many, many people at that point who will not have had their ultimate judgment as yet. So, if the bad can't rise to meet Christ in the air and be there to be kicked out, as this shows later on in this particular parable, we must be talking about something else. <laughs> Let's continue. Verse 11, And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. But when God the Father, and of course he is a king and Christ is a king, so you make it both apply in that sense, whether it be the Father of the Son here, or whether Christ himself, uh, they are one, as we know, even though they're different individuals, they're both involved in our judgment. But he saw one which had not on a wedding garment. This is interesting. The word not, in verse 11, comes from the Greek, O-U. 
Where am I in my notes here? I was going to look at this. Uh, it's a simple statement of fact. There's no censure here. He just happened to see a man without a wedding garment on. And he made a remark. There was a man without a wedding garment. Notice that to this point in the story, no one had addressed the qualifications for acceptance into the wedding. But the king's first concern was proper attire. When he came in, he looked at those assembled and said, I see a man without a wedding garment. He focused on that immediately. Well, what does that begin to tell you? What is the most important thing to be doing at this juncture in history? Preparing the bride. Making sure we have on the garments of righteousness. Let's turn to Isaiah 61 for a moment. Isaiah 61, and beginning in verse 9. And their seed shall be known among the Gentiles, and their offspring among the people. All that see them shall acknowledge them that they are the seed which the Lord has blessed. Now, physical Israel certainly will be recognized in the millennium and the great white throne judgment as the ones who repent probably first and the ones that God has blessed. But when you apply these scriptures to the church, they're also going to begin to look to the church as the ones who are blessed because the church are the ones who are going to be in the first resurrection. The one that everyone will look to in the millennium. First of all, verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adjoins, adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth her bud, and as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. And that's going to happen even before the millennium starts, because God is going to take his people to a place of safety. He's going to protect them, and the two witnesses are going to be a witness against the world. They're not going to like it at all. But God is going to begin restitution in the blessing of his government as those people learn to put it together in a place of safety and prepare to be kings and priests. Now let's go to uh, Revelation 19 and concentrate on what truly is important here. Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. God shows here, he is going to grant righteousness to those who will be busy adorning themselves. Righteousness is not something that wells up from within us. If we put our hand to adorning ourselves, as Isaiah 61 shows, God says he will grant righteousness. I refer you to John's decent series in which he was showing that God works salvation in us. We do not work salvation in ourselves. But we have our responsibility. <coughs> so today, in this parable, we are essentially past the invite stage and now in the garment stage. Let me explain that. The invite stage, essentially, was when Mr. Armstrong was preaching. That's when God was inviting great numbers into the church. 
after that essentially stops. Any great effort that is being made today to do that in the church since Mr. Armstrong died has basically been sort of falling flat. There is an individual here and there who might be called into the church in this day and age, because as we saw before, some will be called even in the eleventh hour. So a few may be, but that is not the focus right now. In this particular parable, it shows us where we are today in working out the plan of God. We are past, essentially past, I'll say, the calling stage. Now we are in the preparation stage. God is sifting, he is sorting, he is checking the hearts of men and women to see if they be true, to see if they will turn to him with their whole hearts when found asleep, if they will wake up and put oil in their lamps and burn brightly. That is the test that we are under right now. Our judgment is right now. God isn't going to call, I don't see, in any way. Another great number to work with and sift through. Here it is. Exclusively. I'm talking Church of the Great God or you and me in this room. I'm talking about those called into the greater worldwide Church of God. I'm sure he has people scattered through all the different groups that he is working with who are responding, who are becoming humble, who are repenting, and putting on the wedding garments. That seems to be the case. But when the king comes and surveys who all has been invited, he says, Now, we have wedding garments on. Can we proceed here? <laughs> and here was one who did not have one on. Go on now to verse 12. And he said to him, Friend, how came you in here not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. No answer. Now the Greek word here is different. This Greek word is me, me, which signifies rebellion. In other words, I will not put one on. Remember who this parable is addressed to now. He's writing to the leaders of physical Israel who have turned down the call, who have gone their way. The call went out through Herbert Armstrong. It went to, it blanketed Israel pretty well in the United States and Western Europe. <laughs> but they rejected it. We will not do what you say. We will ignore this. Not important to us. Who is that crackpot Herbert Armstrong? The Pharisees, the leaders of physical Israel, rejected Christ, and they rejected the early New Testament ministry, Peter, Paul, and James, and John, and so on. And they rejected his servant that he sent later to make another call at the end of the age. They refused to put on a wedding garment. And also, I think, apply this to the church. You see, a parable can have many different variations, meanings, and fit a lot of different places. But out of those who have been called into the church, out of those who did respond that much, not everybody is answering either. Because some are refusing right now to make the effort to put on wedding garments. They refuse to wake up. So there's a very strong message here for you and me.
Even the Laodicean today in the church says, hey, I'm okay. I'm keeping the Sabbath. I'm doing this. What's wrong with me? Anyone who says that, brethren, makes me wonder if they even understand human nature at all. Hey, I'm okay. Come on. The human heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? God can. But sometimes we don't know our own. Maybe we think our motives are pure. But human nature is lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, envy, selfishness. If someone fails to see those things in himself, I, I think he's totally spiritually blind. Anyone who says, well, I'm in the church, I'm okay, does not understand human nature, or he is self-deceived. Maybe he's a tear. I don't know. But the deception, the blinders have to come off. Because God the Father made a very strong point of it here, using different words. First of all, he said, you don't have one. Second of all, he said, use a different word, and says, why do you refuse? Why do you rebel against me? Why aren't you busy doing this? Took it lightly, went on with other things, business, farming, occupation, the cares, the entertainment of this life, reminds me of Haggai 1. Why are you out building your houses and forgetting the house of God? Building the temple. He says, go to the hills, get the wood, come back, build my house. And that should be our focus today, building ourselves as living stones, as building blocks of God's kingdom. That is the focus today. That's what God the Father focused on right here. Then said to the king to the servants, Bind him, I'm in verse 13, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, not part of the kingdom of God. For many are called, but few are chosen. So you see Christ coming right back to that same theme that he's been talking about all along. He had called physical Israel, and they rejected, and these leaders had rejected. He was going to call people into the New Testament church, but most of physical Israel would reject it. That has been the story ever since he began the New Testament church. They still stoned the prophets. Stephen understood before he died what this meant, as they began to throw rocks at him. So he says, bind and cast out. This can't be talking of those at the marriage of Christ. Once you're in the clouds, you're changed from physical and will never be cast down. Then who are these guests? And when is this talking about? Here you have in verse 14, he reiterates to these Jews, many are called few chosen, and this frustrated them, it says. <laughs> they couldn't answer, so they changed the subject and tried to entangle him in another issue. He was discussing them as the leaders of physical Israel, the nation. So the timing is not of the actual wedding supper when those who have changed and married Christ are in the clouds or above the clouds. As verse 14 shows, this is a time of calling, of inviting, of evangelism, even of warning. The simple answer is that the guests are the bridal candidates, <coughs> many of whom are called and few are chosen. We are invited today. We are eating of the wedding table. Every word of God, in other words, 
that we're told to live by. But will we make the final cut? Will our judgment be good or will our judgment be bad? And will we rise when Christ returns? In my notes, I wrote, but will me make the final cut? I meant to say we, but I typed in me. Uh, so, you know, it's me too. I'm not preaching at you. I'm saying we and me. Now let's try John 6.44 into this. This is one you probably all know by heart, so I won't ask you to turn there. John 6.44, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. In other words, any opportunity of salvation is by invitation of the Father. That immediately puts anyone called in the guest category, doesn't it? I called you and me. We were invited to salvation. A call went out. An invitation. So after the choosing, the sifting, the sorting, a final number of exactly 144,000 are selected, the rest are rejected. The chosen ones are resurrected and or changed when Christ returns. For at that point, the guests retained or remaining are the bride. They're the ones that rise. Now, the Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary ties Psalm 45, verses 10 through the end of the chapter to this and showing that Christ is the bridegroom that the Jews obviously reject. <clears throat> I'll go back there for a moment. Psalm 45, verse 10. He says, Hearken, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear, forget also your own people and your father's house, so shall the king greatly desire your beauty, for he is your Lord, and worship you him. We have become the daughters of Zion. He's speaking to the daughter, the church, and he says he will desire our beauty. That is, once we are dressed in the proper attire, he will desire our beauty. Verse 14, she shall be brought to the king in raiment of needlework. The virgins, her companions that follow her, shall be brought to you. Who are the virgins? If you go back to the 144,000, it says these are virgins. Well, what does that mean? 2 Corinthians 11, 2 Paul called the early Corinthian church, or he said he was going to make chaste virgins of them. Well, these were people who had been terrible, terrible sinners in the world. They were going to become virgins. God can make you clean, white, and pure, even though you've been impure. See, this is a spiritual connotation, not a physical. The virgins, her companions, that follow her, shall be brought to you. So it's talking about the bride, the mother, and those who comprise the bride, the companions. With gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought, they shall enter into the king's palace, instead of your father shall be your children, whom you may make princes in all the earth. Reminds you of Revelation 5.10. We shall reign on the earth. So he's going to put the church together, all those who have been invited and chosen, and they will be the ones who rule. Now notice what, uh, here's a quote from Jameson Fawcett Brown, but observe carefully that the bride does not come into view in this parable. It's designed being to teach certain truths under the figure, the analogy, the parable of guests at a wedding feast and the want of a wedding garment which would not have harmonized with the introduction of the bride. So if you've been talking about the bride as complete, you couldn't start rejecting part of it. It could become a very grisly scene, couldn't it? Well, here's the bride, 
but there's some bad in the bride. So we'll take off the finger, throw it away. We'll take off the left foot, throw it away. Uh, her liver's bad. We'll take it out and throw it away. See, that's not going to happen once the bride rises to meet Christ in the air. That occurs before she rises. So instead of talking about the bride and taking physical parts of her out, as we as members, he uses the terminology in the parable of guests. Because as the guests come, before the wedding occurs, you can kick guests out if they're not properly attired. And judgment being now on us, this is the time when we are either accepted or rejected based on what we do. So to me, the allegory begins to make sense. <laughs> this is a parable, not an actuality. So Christ is marrying one bride, she consists of what? Many individuals. One bride composed of 144,000 people. So to illustrate his point, he doesn't refer to the bride as bride, but as guests. The commentators see this. Otherwise, Christ would begin doing organ plants, or transplants, uh, up in the clouds, or wherever, the, before the throne of God, wherever the marriage takes place. Uh, Herbert Lockyer, and all the parables of the Bible, says that this may tie in with 1 Kings 1, 5, and 9. I won't turn to these. You can jot them down and read them yourself. 1 Kings 1, 5, and 9, and 1 Chronicles 29, 24. And in these we find described a pre-wedding feast common in those days. Such a feast in ancient Israel was given at the beginning of a king's reign who married himself to his people in this pre-wedding feast. It was a political thing to get everybody together and feed them and give them wine and make them want to accept him as the king. And today, some people do the same thing. Before the actual wedding occurs and a wedding supper, they have a pre not, not a prenuptial, but a, a pre-wedding feast where all those who are going to be part of the wedding party come, they have a dinner, and then they practice the wedding. And that's basically, I think, what he's describing here. That's what Lockyer came up with. That this is the pre-wedding supper you and I are at. We've been invited as guests. We've been invited to be a part of the bride. But if we don't put on righteousness, then we'll be rejected and we'll actually be part of the wedding not be part of the bride. So we come full circle back to John 10, the other sheep we talked about. There's only one way, there's one fold, one Savior, and one shepherd. Without the garments of righteousness, any who seek will be rejected. So in this parable, <clears throat> the guests at the wedding are actually the bride was being prepared right now as we speak. Some of us are becoming acceptable, some of us are not. That's a scary thing. Now, there are no second-class first fruits in the first resurrection. What is the resurrection of the first fruits? It's the first crop. Now, wouldn't it be strange if you had those who are selected who become part of the bride? Every one of us has opportunity of salvation. Okay? So Christ selects some as the bride, and then he says, well, this one's not good enough to be bride. We'll let them attend. We'll let them be in the kingdom, but they're all bridesmaids. Now, how does that always make a girl feel? Bridesmaid again. You know, this is the fourth time I've been in the wedding party, and I'm not a bride yet. 
Would that be great cause for rejoicing if you were in the first resurrection and says, well, these are the first class, you're the second class, back of the bus. I don't think Christ will do that to anyone. You're either in or you're out. There are 144,000, no more, no less. And when he finishes sealing these 144,000, finishes setting them aside as the ones, then he returns. <clears throat> the last two to make it are likely the two witnesses. Their number is 143,999 and number 144,000. So don't think that you can sneak in just at the last minute, hey, there's two slots left, maybe I can get one of them, because those two are already reserved. Better get ready ahead of time. Because <clears throat> they're killed and resurrected three and a half days later at the last trump. Now, however, apart from the bride, there are real guests at the wedding of Christ and his bride. We can see them in Revelation 5. Revelation 5. So this is not referring specifically, I suppose, to uh, the wedding supper. In that sense, it indicates who is looking. The real guests, as we'll find here, are the heavenly host. Revelation 5, verse 6. I beheld and lo, in the midst of the throne, and the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb. Jesus Christ was there. And he took a book out of his right hand, and the, the four beasts, the twenty-four elders, in uh, verse 8, fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song. Who is going to sing a new song? The saints of God. It says back in Revelation 2 and 3. You were worthy to take the book to open the seals, for you were slain, and you've redeemed us. These are the redeemed. The 144,000 are called the redeemed there in Revelation 7. To God, by your blood, out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and have made to us our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Now notice verse 12. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts, and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Millions of angels, the 24 elders, the beasts before the throne of God. These have all been waiting to see the mystery of God fulfilled. It says in Hebrews, even the angels look into this. They don't fully comprehend how God could take you and me and turn us into God. It's beyond the angels' comprehension, just as it is yours and mine when we might lay in bed and quietly think, how can this hope become God? But it's true. And they are going to have their attention riveted right there at the wedding supper, when we, if we qualify, sing a new song to our husband, Jesus Christ. And they're all going to be there with rapt attention being paid to the, the goings-on. And they will sing, and they will bow before Christ and his bride and worship her. We're made for a little while more than the angels, but then we'll be raised above the angels. They are the real guests at the wedding. Now, this makes the bride pretty exclusive, doesn't it? If there are only 144,000, 6,000 years God has used to select 
that many people out of all the billions that existed on this earth. He is very carefully selecting. You and I have opportunity. Now, I do not want to take a whole sermon to talk about doctrine. But doctrine is one of the key areas that God shows the exclusivity of his church, of his people. So I'm going to take the rest of the time today, about 15 minutes, to do a short excerpt on doctrine before we get on with the next issue in the next sermon. <clears throat> You're very familiar with John 4.24. We won't turn to all of these, but I want to read them. John 4.24, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And you may remember when I first started this series that I said, what spawns this, what got me thinking about how exclusive is the church, is the fact that many, many in God's church today that have come out of Worldwide and now are in living rooms or they're in various splinter groups from the church, have begun to think that the church isn't all that exclusive after all. That some of the messianics, some of the Baptists who go on Sunday have good attitudes and they show love and they are nice people and they're moral and maybe they will be in the first resurrection. It isn't just those that God has called into the worldwide church of God. <laughs> to me, that is an alarming trend. Because God says he has concluded Israel in unbelief and that Satan deceives the whole world, Revelation 12, 9. Can they enter into the kingdom of God? Or is the church more exclusive than that? Can we just sort of throw a big loop and say, well, I guess these can be included as well. We need to understand where we have been called to the heavenly Jerusalem, to Zion, to the feet of Jesus Christ himself. And that that is a very exclusive calling, brethren. It is very important, and we are so blessed to be a part of it. And it isn't fair to start roping people into it whom God has not called. They will have their opportunity. That's what these parables have been about. That you, who were called first at Mount Sinai, are going to be last. And those that I'm calling into the New Testament church are going to be first. And here called and few chosen. But now let's notice what he said. God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. That is critical. Isaiah 29, 44. Just jot it down. They that erred in spirit shall come to understanding, and they that murmured shall learn doctrine. Doctrine is key. Romans 6:17. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. Again, just write these. I'm not going to turn to them. Because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. The way, the truth, the life. 2 John 9, verse 10. I will turn to that one very quickly. It's a pivotal one. 2 John 9. Whosoever transgresses and abides not in the doctrine of Christ 
has not God. How plain can you get? He that abides in the doctrine of Christ, he has both the Father and the Son. But, now here is a big if, brethren. If there come any to you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. He does not have Christ, he does not have the Father. He is concluded in unbelief, he is not a candidate for salvation until either the millennium or the great white throne judgment, unless perhaps he comes in at the eleventh hour and receives the doctrine of truth. Doctrine is critical as to whether or not you have opportunity. Pretty exclusive. Now, let's narrow down the first resurrection candidates very quickly with doctrine. So easy to do. <clears throat> I can ask you four questions and eliminate everybody on this earth except those who have been called into the worldwide church of God, at least for this age. I will not exclude, let me hasten to say, perhaps there are a few in Russia or South America who have the Sabbath, the holy days, or a remnant of the early New Testament church, maybe a few stayed in England, who still have the truth. We've found little pockets here and there over the last 50 years of people who may have correct doctrine. And they may be a very small remnant of the church. So I, when I'm saying to the Worldwide Church of God, I'm talking about the big work that God is doing here at the end. Because even those people in South America or Russia, if they are to be included, have to have the doctrine right. See these scriptures to prove that. Now, first question, do you observe the seventh day, Saturday, as the Sabbath? That eliminates almost all religions, almost. It still includes the Seventh-day Baptists, the Seventh-day Adventists, the Jews, the Worldwide Church of God barely, and her daughters, perhaps a few others. Well, you've eliminated most people by one doctrine. Sabbath's a test commandment. If they don't keep the Sabbath, God isn't working with them. That is a very powerful doctrine. Fourth of the commandments. If you will enter the light, keep the commandments. So if you don't keep the Sabbath, that eliminates you from consideration. Second question. Do you keep the holy days of the Bible? No simple one. That's part of the Sabbath command. Part of the test commandment. That disqualifies the Seventh-day Baptists, the Seventh-day Adventists, it leaves the Jews, and the Worldwide Church of God. All that's left. Now, ask a third question. Do you accept Jesus, who came and lived as a man, as the Savior and coming King? That eliminates most of the Jews, save the Messianics, and leaves the Church of God and the Messianics. This is narrowing down pretty fast, isn't it? The Baptists who have good morals are not included. Even the Gentiles can see, Paul said, that there are certain things you ought to live by, that you ought to be moral, that your society can't exist without keeping the laws against thievery and murder and so on. That doesn't mean that they have God's spirit. All right, let's ask a fourth question. Do you believe in the Trinity? That disqualifies the Messianics. Because I just read that they 
consider themselves, in their own words, the conservative Protestants evangelical, believing the same as the evangelicals, which means heaven and hell, the Trinity, and ad nauseum. Now, with four questions, we're down to the Church of God. That simple. No equivocation. They don't have those four doctrines right. And there's an awful lot more that they don't have right. But I mean, just for simply narrowing it down very quickly by a process of elimination, you get rid of everybody but the New Testament Church of God that God has called. Most of us already believe this. Why we're here. It's part of the greater Church of God, or one of her splinters or daughters. But now comes the scary part, brethren. Now comes the part that affects you and me. Once we already understand that these other people out there are excluded from opportunity to salvation until later on. <clears throat> Isaiah 59:14. Isaiah 59:14 says, "For truth is fallen in the street." That's what happened in the worldwide Church of God. Truth is fallen. No longer considered. It's time for you to act, O God, for they have voided your laws, it says in the Psalms. Jude 3. These are scriptures we understand. Earnestly contend, fight for, contend for the faith, the body of doctrine, which was once delivered to the saints. Don't let those doctrines get away that God introduced to us in the Church of God. The Sabbath, the holy days, the true nature of God with two beings, and the spirit of his power, and many, many others, the very nature of man, and the purpose of man, very foundational doctrines, earnestly contend for the body of doctrine that we learned. Ephesians 4.14, that we henceforth be no longer children, tossed forth to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine. Most of us read these before we ever came out of worldwide. We began to realize that we had to get out of there because we were dying there, spiritually. Hebrews 13, 9, Be not carried about by different and strange doctrines. Hebrews 13, 9. 1 Corinthians 14, 25 to 26. He says, Is God in you of a truth? Is he really there, brethren? Is he really in us? Is he really in a Baptist or a Methodist? How come, Paul says, each has a different doctrine? How come you let yourselves get away from it, everyone lean to his own understanding, and begin to have all kinds of different doctrines, other than what the apostles taught, and the end-time apostle taught through Herbert Armstrong? 2 Timothy 4.3, they will not endure sound doctrine. Begin to lose it. The apostles say that this is very dangerous. 1 Timothy 1.3. 1 Timothy 1.3. He, he told uh, Timothy that he teach no other doctrine. Doctrine is critical to salvation. So I hope we can see that and we understand that. Doctrine is critical to find finding the true church. <clears throat> and that it is very exclusive. Just being good and showing love to your neighbor is not enough unless it is undergirded by the truth, every word of God. Now the scariest part to you and me is found in Romans 
So you and I are here because we understand true doctrine, aren't we? We understand it well enough that we finally came out of Worldwide Church of God, we separated from the false doctrine that was being taught, and we have gone back to the true doctrine that we were taught. And that's why we're here in this room or on this phone line today, is because we want to get back to those foundational truths. But Romans 2.13 <laughs> is a strong admonition for you and me. When though we understand true doctrine, he says, not the hearers only, but the doers shall be justified. We were in worldwide and understood true doctrine. As the doctrine changed, that's how the apostasy occurred. That's how God, our Satan began to lull people to sleep and take them away from the truth was by doctrinal change. Satan knew if he could change the doctrine, he could put the whole church to sleep, thinking that they were okay, and that the Protestants could be part of the first resurrection. That's what worldwide's teaching today, and their evangelical, Protestant, Assyrian, Babylonian, Egyptian form of government and form of doctrine, form of church. They've gone right back to Protestantism, and it is that change of doctrine that created the problem. So the challenge for us is to go back to, retain, understand, accept, and lose the true doctrine. Because even though we understand it, and we've come out, it is so dangerous to settle down in Global, or United, or Philadelphia, or Church of the Great God, or Fred Coulter's group, or any other group you might want to go to, to settle down and say, ah, finally, now I'm hearing those things which I always believed. Settle down and get comfortable again. We're going to come to this group, we do not intend to let you become comfortable. Because we must don the wedding garments to be accepted. We must be doers and not hearers only to be justified. So we've come this far. God has made you and me very exclusive, brethren. He's given us the truth of the living God. If we deny that, do not follow it, we are in trouble. Only a percentage of the church is going to make the cut. Some of us who have been called as guests are not going to be included as bride. Picked out before the bride is completely formed and her numbers made. Well, this world's religions are deceived. They worship they know not what. They do not understand the purpose of man, the commandments, the Sabbath, the holy days, law, and grace, the nature of God, the kingdom of God, the nature of man, repentance, and baptism. Therefore, they cannot be a part of the first resurrection. They will be saved in the millennium or the great white throne judgment when they repent then. God has given it to a very small, exclusive group. Church today. We are very exclusive indeed. That leads to the next issue that I'm going to address, the innumerable multitude of Revelation 7, and God willing, next time I speak, if he allows me to do that, we will get into the innumerable multitude and see how they fit into this plan, because we've seen the exclusivity of the New Testament church, and the 144,000 is the bride of Christ, 
so where do these other people fit?